Is there really such a thing as the perfect scam? Today, there are millions of scams, and millions of us are falling for them. Every week on AARP's Perfect Scam podcast, we're going to introduce you to the victims of scams and the families of victims. We're going to talk to real-life scam artists and con men, and with the help of one of the world's top experts on the topic, we'll pull back the curtain on how scammers operate and how you can protect yourself. This call center scam works. These people um, have figured out a way to make a lot of money off of this. I don't think anyone realized to the degree that he was living a double life. I never had a clue he was living a double life. The daughter then immediately, I could hear her just absolutely screaming at her mother. You already been scammed a couple of times with your identity and you've lost thousands of dollars on things like this before and yet you continually fall for this. I was emotionally vulnerable. It felt good that there was somebody who wants to talk to me nice and and sweet talk and whatever. It just kind of dawned on me at that point that how many other of these people that have I talked to did I potentially remove this money from their rent checks? Did I remove from their, their grocery bills? For the AARP's Perfect Scam podcast, I'm your host, Will Johnson. And I'd like to introduce my co-host, AARP's Fraud Watch Network ambassador and one of the world's leading experts on the topic, Frank Abagnale. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Many of you will know Frank's story from the 2002 movie, Catch Me If You Can. Before he turned 20 years old, Frank became an airline pilot, a doctor, a teacher, a lawyer, without ever getting a license or using his real name. He made a lot of money and eventually got caught for his crimes. But Act Two of Frank's life has been a long career with the FBI and other notable organizations. He knows more about scams and fraud than almost anyone on the planet. Frank, how did you first get started? When did you first realize maybe even you had an ability to do this kind of thing, maybe present yourself as someone who you're not? You know, that was self-taught, I think. Uh, You know, I was uh, 16 years old when my parents got a divorce and I was pulled out of school and brought to court and told that I had to choose between my mother and my father. Uh, Rather than choose, I ran out of the courtroom and became a runaway. Back in the 1960s, runaway running away from home was very popular. Unfortunately, a lot of kids got in Haight-Ashbury, the hippie scene, the drug scene. I ended up on the streets of New York City, 16 years old, no money, and I realized I had to survive. So my first thing I realized is no one's going to deal with a 16-year-old. Because I looked a little older, I I decided to alter my date of birth on my driver's license. I was actually born in April of 1948. I dropped the four, converted it to a three, and that made me 10 years older or 26 years old. Uh, I had a checking account, didn't have a lot of money in it, but I started writing checks, and then I realized how easy it was to write checks. Um, And then one day I was walking down the street, still 16, and I saw an airline crew come out of a hotel. And I thought to myself, you know, if I had that uniform, when I walk in a bank to cash a check, it'll be 10 times easier because the uniform shows trust. uh, And and I think it will work a lot better. So I finagled to get a uniform. I posed as an airline pilot for a couple of years. I realized I could fly around on the planes for free. I stayed in the hotels for free. So let me stop you. So the movie is pretty true to your story yes. or absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, that feels like what, what we saw. And so that first changing of your driver's license, would you say that was almost like your first First thing I really did into... that was kind of fraud. Okay. And um, and then I, you know, I uh, – impersonated a doctor in a Georgia hospital for a while. I passed the bar in Louisiana practice law uh, there. I uh, Actually, by the time I was old enough to drink, I had written about $2.5 million worth of bad checks in all 50 states and about 26 foreign countries. 
Uh, like all criminals, sooner or later you get caught. I was arrested at 21 by the French police in southern France, uh, charged with forgery. I spent time in the French prisons. I was later extradited to Sweden, convicted of forgery, and spent time in Swedish prisons, and then was brought back to the United States where a U.S. federal judge sentenced me to 12 years in federal prison. And in, in New York? In Atlanta. In Atlanta, right. And, uh, and uh, I served about four of those 12 years. When I was 26 years old, the government offered to take me out of prison on the condition I go to work with an agency of the federal government for the remainder of my sentence or until my parole had been completed. Uh, I agreed and was released. And I've been working with the FBI now for 41 years. So deep breath for anyone who just heard all of that and have not heard Frank's story before. It is truly amazing. And, and again, you did all this before you were at least that part of, of your life right. before you were 2021. 20, um, what was, as you look back on it now and throughout your life, what was the hardest part of, before, of course, being caught of, of that experience of, of scamming people? I mean, there's a lot of it that's sort of amazing, romanticized to some extent um, and incredible and funny, but it must have been at times lonely. It was a very, very lonely life. I would never want to live it over again, even if though I know where it brought me today, nor would I wish it on anyone. It was a very lonely life. Uh, you know, I did it at a very young age. I never got to go to a senior prom, high school football game, share a relationship with someone my age, spent the best part of my life probably behind bars and some very bad prisons. Um, I think in my case, uh, you know, it started out for me as survival, and then people started chasing me. So then it became, how do I stay ahead of the people chasing me? Until it ultimately became more of a game towards the end. I truly believe that people who say, well, you were brilliant, you were a genius, that's not the case. I was just 16 years old. I truly believe I got away with the things I got away with because I was an adolescent. I had no fear of being caught. I had no fear of consequences. So I didn't sit out in front of a bank with a $500 check and say to myself, I'm going to go in this bank and here's my plan. If they say this, I'll do this. If they do this, I'll do that. I just went in and did it. I always believed that had I been a little older and started doing this at 21 or 25, I wouldn't have done half the things because I would have rationalized them and said, it's never going to work. It's not going to happen. I had the, uh, the, the idea of a kid where everything's possible and I can do this and I can get away with it. And that confidence, I think, came because I was I was so young. And that's why I got away with the things I probably got away with. I'm, I'm curious when, when, when they approached you and you were in, in federal prison in Atlanta and said, look, here's, here's the deal. Would you like to do this? What was that like to hear? Were you expecting that at all? No, I wasn't expecting it at all. And I always say to people, you know, people always say to me, what made you change? Was that the change in your life or were you already changed individual? You know, I would be sitting here lying to you if I told you that I was born again or I saw the light or prison rehabilitated me or that I had all good intentions when I accepted that offer. I really didn't know if I was any different or that I would go back to a life of crime or I would uh, I would start doing those things again. I just saw it as I saw a lot of things at a young age as opportunities. I was truly an opportunist and I saw that as an opportunity to get out of out of prison. Um but along the way, I, I met my wife. Uh, I, I had children. And I think that's what really changed my life. It wasn't anything other than realizing the responsibility of being a husband, uh, being a father, bringing children into the world. And also, when you work with the men and women of the FBI, they are truly the most ethical people that have the most amazing personal character that you can't help but have that wash off on you because you're around them. 
and then you start to realize how important their country is to them, their family is to them. Those are the things that really changed my life. I'd be lying if I said uh, prison rehabilitated me and I came out a changed man. That, that was not the case. All right. So, Frank, uh, thanks for sharing a, a condensed version of your life story. And as we reviewed a lot of our stories for the show, it seemed like some scams were more heartless than others. Uh, and that's why we love this story so much, not because it's heartless, but because our hero, Richard, doesn't actually fall for it. So some of our scams will indeed have people that actually turn the tables to some extent. So, of course, that doesn't mean the scammer didn't just move on to countless other victims. But there's definitely a lesson that we can all learn from Richard. I am 88 years old and um, still getting around. Uh, I've been a journalist all my life since the age of 15. Um, I worked for Time Incorporated, worked for Life magazine uh, for many years with the founding editor of In other words, Richard's no fool, so when his landline rings, he's already on alert. The first thing I heard was, hi, Grandpa. And I said, who's this? I mean, it was not a voice I recognized. Well, he said, don't you recognize my voice? It's Kenny, he said, uh, which is indeed my grandson. I'm in Chicago. Uh, that's, uh, it was a little strange that he was in Chicago because my granddaughter is in Chicago, and and I had no idea that he was there. Then then he said, can I tell you something in secret that you won't tell anybody else, please? I thought, that was a strange thing for my grandson. And is, is Kenny someone who, who might just call you out of the blue? It sounds like not on your landline anyway. Not really. I mean, I talked to to his mother, yeah. my daughter. He he would call me when I sent him a, a Christmas or birthday gift, and uh, and you know when I visited his hometown, I saw him all of the rest. But no. But when he said, "Can I tell you something that you won't tell anyone else?" I said, "Of course." Then he said, "Here's what happened, Emily. That's his sister." And I went to a White Sox game, ball, baseball game last night. And we were on our way back to our hotel when our cab was pulled over by the police. They found marijuana in the trunk and arrested us. I'm at the police station now with the lawyer. At this point, whoever is on the end of the line knows a thing or two about Richard's grandson and is making a desperate plea for help. This may be just enough to get Richard asking more questions, it seems. But again, he is no fool. And my first question, perhaps a repertorial question, were you carrying drugs yourself? And um, he said no, that they found him in in the trunk and uh, uh, and assumed that they belong to the driver. Right. Having something in the trunk doesn't necessarily mean uh, you're the one that's going to get hauled in for it, especially a cab. That, of course, was my first question. I said, if you weren't carrying it, why why were you arrested? And this is where they really get clever. He said, the police say, I have to stay in Chicago um, until the cab driver is put on trial, which will be four to six weeks. So if they release us, 
they want us to post, in, in effect, a $2,000 bond to make sure we'll come back. Are we talking about like a garbage bag of marijuana here, or just did you say how much? No, okay. did not say how much. And you, and you, um, well, as soon as I discovered it wasn't theirs, the amount of marijuana um, seemed not very important. Didn't matter. And the, and the whole thing, of course, it was, was was beginning to smell at this point. Yeah. And and I I, I remember reading. Uh, your story, and there was something about the White Sox game in particular that kind of raised your suspicion, right? Well, there were, there were two things. Did one is that uh, uh, his uh, his sister was indeed working in Chicago uh, for the summer um, before her um, final year in college, and but she had an apartment, so he said we're on our way back to her hotel, huh? And then went to a White Sox game. Now, her hotel was on the north side of Chicago. And if you lived there, you would not go all the way down south to a White Sox ball game. You'd go to a Cubs ball game. <laughs> right. So you're using some uh, some geographical awareness of Chicago. No, and, uh, but it's, it, it's very real in, in yeah. Chicago. Yeah. And uh, so uh, things began... <laughs> Not adding up, and um, and at that point, he said, "Will you please talk to the lawyer? He's right here next to me." I'm starting to feel like they called the wrong guy. Well, first of all, I mean it's the first time I'd had a call like that. And all of my instincts were, were rising up to, to say this is phony, but. What if it wasn't? And um, and he really was in trouble. And here's where you have to start to see how convincing these calls can be. Not every 88-year-old has Richard's background in journalism or knowledge of a certain town, or maybe just his skeptical nature. And not every octogenarian is going to double-guess the voice of someone claiming to be their grandson and pleading for help. I mean, they still have Richard asking questions. Are you 55-plus? There are many ways your community could use your help. As an AmeriCorps Seniors Volunteer, you can put your skills to work for the causes you care about, whether that's by becoming a companion for an older adult or a foster grandparent for a child, tutoring students, joining a disaster response effort, or fulfilling another interest. Choose how, where, and when you want to volunteer, starting at just a few hours a month. This is your moment to make a positive impact on your community and get back so much more in return. Visit americourt.gov slash your moment today. The, the amazing thing is the, the information that he had about me, never mind the phone, phone line, but the fact that he knew his twin sister was in Chicago and um, and that he knew sort of enough about uh, Chicago, the ball, the, the baseball teams, and uh, and all the rest. Um, and I said you should talk to one of our, one of the family in Chicago, not me. Uh, there's not much I can do from here. And I said, and then I, at that point, I said this sounds kind of fishy to me. And then he. He, we're talking to actors here too. Then he said this heartfelt response, please, Grandpa. 
And I have to say, I had this momentary twinge. But then I asked, Kenny, if that's who you are, what's your address in Los Angeles? Click. Richard asked the right question, and he was ready to ask more if they had the right answer. But that's the thing. Here's this smart, intuitive guy, but they've said enough in just the right way to get him asking questions, to get him wondering just a little bit if this could really be his grandson stuck in a jail asking for money. I, you know, I'm picturing you on this call uh, at home and all in the, uh, the part of your story there where you said, you, you, you know, he says, please, Grandpa, I, I can only imagine I, I, the thoughts that ran through your head. You know, you're trying to do the right thing, but also not be uh, fooled by a huckster. That, that please, Grandpa, and, and it was done in just the right plaintive, pleading tone. Um, that was the, the worst moment of the, of the entire conversation. After they hung up, Richard called the Federal Trade Commission and got the lowdown on this kind of scam. What he learned is the unfortunate truth behind all of this. A lot of people are falling for it, and a lot of people caught up in the emotion and urgency of the caller's voice are sending money to someone they've never met and never will. I told him what I've been through, and, and he said that is typical. And I said, this happened a lot, and he said that elder that grandparents, senior Americans, send millions millions of dollars to scam artists every year uh, as a result of the kind of conversation you just went through. So after this happened, I mean, I was so kind of stunned by all of this that um, I sat down and uh, and, and wrote an email to uh, all the members of my family that I had email addresses for, primarily uh, my four grown daughters and uh, and in some cases their husbands to tell them what I'd been through within a few hours I heard back from two uh, members of my extended family one was a grandfather um, who lived in Kentucky he said he had been through a similar experience and he Apparently, whoever called him was not as clever as my uh, Kenny because he began asking questions immediately and the the phone went dead uh, within two or three minutes. Um, the, the other phone call, he picked up the phone. He was at home, picked up the phone, and there was this, again, plaintive voice appealing to Grandpa. And he said, I'm in Phoenix. We got in a fight in a bar, and I got punched in the nose. And so I know my voice is very different from what it normally is. And that he needed um, he needed bill money so he could come home. Um, and uh, Grandpa went around the corner and sent money. When did you talk to Kenny after all this? Did, and did you, did, did you connect with him eventually? Kenny was was away in working someplace in L.A. at the time, so I talked to his mother, right? and, and I've talked with him since then. <clears throat> and he is um, uh, he's absolutely amazed at what happened. I, I'm glad Kenny's staying out of trouble. <laughs> he's uh, he's graduated from college and has a good job. 
Yeah, and, and you, well, at least you've got a good story to tell each to share with each other, I guess. Exactly. So, Frank, uh, do these scammers ever impress you with their with their stories or the, their ability to to fool somebody? You can always tell by listening to uh, someone tell the actual incident whether these are real amateurs that are doing this or really pros that are doing it. Uh, it's not always just an individual. A lot of times these are boiler rooms, rooms set up with seven or eight people in the room. And uh, they've advanced far beyond that now. So what they do now is, first of all, they go to a social media site of that grandson so they can get the grandson's name, the mother's name, his father's name, sister's names, girlfriend's names, even sometimes what kind of car he's driving. Uh, They obviously are able to manipulate the caller ID. So they don't want to say they're the grandson because then too many questions can be asked of the grandson to verify it is the grandson. So what I've seen more often is the conversation starts by the phone ringing And it says on there that it's XYZ Police Department. So you pick it up and someone says, this is Sergeant O'Brien with the XYZ Police Department. We've arrested your grandson. They give him the name. Uh, He was driving this vehicle, but he was DWI. So in this case, they don't even have to talk to the grandson. Right, they don't have to talk. And they say he was with his girlfriend. They give the girlfriend's name. Girlfriend is not in custody, but your grandson is. Uh, He has asked us not to call his parents, but he has asked us to call you. He needs to post bail in the next couple of hours, or he'll have to spend the weekend in jail. So oh immediately my they've got all these all these details. Details. And, of course, immediate, everything always with every scam has to be urgent right now, must be done this moment. Right. So then, the, of course, the grandparent is immediately, uh, well, well, what do I have to do? Well, you need to basically just uh, give me a credit card number, and I can put it on your credit card. The bail is $200 or whatever they say the bail is. Of course, they're going to charge to the car a lot more money, and they get the parent or grandparent to give them a card number. So they've gotten much more sophisticated. They've realized that you might start questioning about what's your address or what's this relative's name. So this way you're not dealing with the grandson. The grandson's in, in custody. Um, as, I, as all scams, and we'll go through this a lot, I live on a simple philosophy. Everything is basically stop and verify. So... The simplest thing there is for me to hang up the phone, call, call, uh, look up in the phone book the police department's phone number, call the police department, ask for the sergeant. Uh, they're, of course, going to say there's no one here by that name. Then you'll explain, I got this call. No, we don't have your grandson in custody. And, sir, that's a scam. It's perpetrated all the time. Just ignore that, uh, that call and don't fall for that. I think that's the biggest mistake we make. We listen to the conversation and then we don't verify the information that was given to us. We don't check it out. We don't stop and say, before I send some money, even if you had said to that caller, well, you know what? I'll just come down to the police department right now and I'll post the money. They would hang up or tell you, no, you can't do that. You can't come down. You have to, which you then would start to get a little bit suspicious. But again, they, they've gotten so sophisticated that, again, you know, even a very smart person would think, well, the caller ID says it's the police department. He knows all this information, even knows what car that he has. So it sounds that this must be real. But when it starts to get bad, it's that the police are never going to tell you, yes, post bail with your credit card over the phone. Uh, those are the kind of things where then you start to get a little bit suspicious. So my response would have been, well, can I just come down and post that bail right now? Right. It makes you wonder the percentage of calls in 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 the world that have actually 
when a grandparent or, or rather a grandchild has ever actually called a grandparent for help right. from jail. You know, maybe it's never even happened. I mean, I'm sure it has. Exactly. But these boiler rooms. So these exist across the country. I mean, I'm uh, sure outside of the country. country and have for years. And there are all types of boiler rooms. Have boiler you been to rooms, these? Have you seen? I've, I've seen them. We're, okay. The Bureau has raided them over and over. Uh, sometimes there are boiler rooms selling you investment scams. And they're used in somebody's house like, or, or an uh, office park? Sometimes in a house. Sometimes wherever. they've rented office space and they operate out of office space. Yeah. Sometimes there's been as many as uh, 30, 40, 50 people in the room. Using the sense of urgency and fear uh, on a call and having to do with a family member. As you look back at, at your early career and doing this kind of thing, was, was that something that would come into play? Or was it a really different time and really different kinds of well, stuff that was going you know, on. with me, it was a little bit different because I had one motive all the time, and that was to cash a check. <laughs> right. So I wasn't really trying to swindle right. anyone out of their money. Right. I will tell you one of the things that most amazed me about that experience was that, say, I had met a friend, whether it be a guy or a girl, and later on when the police interviewed them, I was surprised because the individual would say, well, look, I have to be honest. He, he really didn't swindle me out of anything. On the contrary... Uh, he bought me a lot of gifts. He took me on trips. He was very nice to me. Um, it, he didn't do anything to, to hurt me in any way, except he deceived me. And I will never speak to him again. And I'm very mad because he didn't trust me enough to tell me who he really was. And people really do not like to be deceived. That's the whole thing. It's not that you took their money or whatever, the fact that you deceived him. And I had to learn that that way, that I was really shocked at, wow, why could this guy be mad? All the things I gave him and all the trips I took him on and they're mad. Well, they were mad because you were their friend and they come to find out you were deceiving them. Even though you didn't do anything to them, you didn't take anything from them, uh, you took their trust. And, and that really bothers people. And that, that was a real eye opener for me. That's really interesting. And did you ever have the opportunity or the experience of then speaking to some of these people later in life. It yeah, sounds I've like you knew that. I've had the opportunity to see a lot of them only yeah. because of the movie and then yeah. people contact me. And I think people uh, I've I think people feel it's great that what I've done with my life now. But probably down deep they maybe feel they still were a little bit deceived and that that bothered them. It's like, you know, it's the same way in a relationship. If you're deceiving someone in the relationship and they find out later it's not that you mistreated them, you took them to great restaurants, you took them on trips, you paid for vacations with them. But in reality, you were fooling around with somebody else. You were having on other affairs with someone else. The deception is what's really devastating to a lot of people. We are joined now by Jen Beam. She is with the Fraud Watch Network. She manages the Fraud Watch Network Facebook page. Jen, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. All right. So this week on our show, we'd like to talk to you about Facebook. Tell us about some of the scams that are happening there. One of the things we're seeing most often lately is uh, with Facebook Messenger. So that's, you know, direct message app right within Facebook. It's on your phone. So one of the top scams I'm seeing and getting a lot of questions about is you'll get, uh, it could be appear that it's coming from a friend. It could appear to be coming from a page that you follow, but you'll get a message that will be a cute emoji or a sticker, you know, a happy bouncing puppy, and then a video. And the video link, if you clicked on that link, what happens is it brings you right to a Facebook login page. So people look at that and they go, oh, geez, I got you know kicked out of Facebook. I better log back in. And 
it's a fake page. And really what it is is scammers grabbing your password and your login information. Does that, it usually comes from, it has to have a name, right? Or some, I mean, usually the names, it, sometimes I feel like the names are, uh, are are kind of absurd sounding names, right? They've got to go out and find a, a name. that. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, I mean, I think it's the classic, uh, you know, imposter scam. So sometimes they'll make it seem just close enough to something you've heard of, um, you know, just, uh, maybe a LinkedIn, but spelled different, um, a friend, uh, sort of like a generic name. Right. Uh, so it can vary. Um, for us, we see, you know, all kinds. So we'll see something that looks like a nonprofit organization. We'll also see something that looks like it's just coming from, you know, a nice woman, you know, Mary Jones from Montana. Right. Slow down, click on that profile, take a look around. If there's only three photos in that. There's nothing else that looks like it was created last week. That's a scam. All right, Jen, thanks a ton for your great information. And uh, we'll, we'll look forward to having you back again sometime. Thank you so much. Jen Beam is with the Fraud Watch Network, manages the Fraud Watch Network Facebook page. Frank, your wealth of information. Luckily, we have a whole season of show, of episodes coming coming to our listeners to uh, to go through a lot more in the shadowy world of scams. Uh, the main things: grandparents, parents, uh, stop and verify. Absolutely, doesn't matter whether you're a grandparent, and you're eighty, or you're a grandparent, and you're fifty. All right, next week we'll be back with more scams, more frauds, and of course, my co-host Frank Abagnale. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. For more information and resources on how to protect yourself from becoming a victim of a scam, visit AARP's Fraud Watch Network website, aarp.org slash fraudwatchnetwork. Special thanks to our producers, Julie Getz and Brooke Ellis, our audio guru and engineer, Julio Gonzalez, and of course, my co-host, Frank Abagnale. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts or any of the many fine podcast outlets you choose to visit. For The Perfect Scam, I'm Will Johnson.